the time of year for making New Year's resolutions. I'm not big on New Year's resolutions, and it isn't that I'm not big on change and transformation and even the scary religious word repentance, which John the Baptist uses in the verses just preceding our passage in Matthew this morning, when he's calling people to come to the Jordan River to be baptized. I'm all for transformation. In fact, I believe it's the point of the life of faith. But as for New Year's resolutions, I agree with someone who said, my resolution is to not break any resolutions, and as long as I don't make any other resolutions, I should be okay. (laughs) New Year's resolutions just seem like an opportunity to mess up. As much as we might want to or need to change, do we really need more reasons to feel as though we've messed up? A friend startled me with her New Year's resolution this year. She said it's more of a goal. Somehow I like that word better. But in any event, her resolution or her goal is to be able to walk into a room, a party, a locker room at the gym, and not do that instantaneous assessment that many women do without even thinking about it, where she compares herself to the other women. This is personally challenging to me, and I think it's challenging for everyone, not necessarily with regard to appearance, but with respect to whatever whatever it is that makes you feel deep down inside as though you've messed up, as though you're not good enough. Do you walk into a meeting thinking, am I as smart, as clever, as powerful as everyone else? Do you walk into back-to-school night thinking, are my kids' grades as good? Did my son get into as good a college? Does my daughter get into more trouble than that perfect family sitting next to me? Or maybe for you it's the if-when problem. I'll be worthy when I lose weight, when I make more money, when I have a boyfriend. I'll be worthy if I get promoted, if I get enough degrees behind my name, if I can hold on to my job. In the year of our Lord, 2014, we are living in what researchers call a culture of scarcity, of not enough, never enough. We are bombarded with messages that we don't measure up, and we often swallow them, hook, line, and sinker. Social science researcher Brene Brown, author of The Gift of Imperfection and Daring Greatly, writes extensively about how this gets in the way of, it sabotages, blows to smithereens our ability to love and belong. Two irreducible needs of every human being. She writes, if you roughly divide the men and women I've interviewed into two groups, those who feel a deep sense of love and belonging, and those who struggle for it, there's only one variable that separates the groups. Those who feel lovable, who love and who experience belonging, simply believe they are worthy of love and belonging. They don't have better or easier lives. They don't have fewer struggles with addiction or depression. And they haven't survived fewer traumas or bankruptcies or divorces. But in the midst of all these struggles, they have developed practices that enable them to hold on to the belief that they are worthy of love belonging, and even joy. How do we achieve or stumble on or receive this sense of worthiness? Brown says it doesn't just happen. It has to be cultivated. 
And this is no small challenge, and there is no simple solution. But part of our faith's answer to this question concerns baptism. Today we celebrate the baptism of the Lord. It's on the church calendar. We just finished celebrating Jesus' birth and the visit of the Magi, and then in one week we jump ahead 30 years to the moment he shows up as an adult on the banks of the Jordan River, responding to John the Baptist's call to a baptism of repentance. Now, the early church struggled with the questions that John raises in today's passage. Why would Jesus need a baptism of forgiveness of sin? Why would he submit to baptism by a merely human prophet and teacher? Each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, works out a different response to these questions. In today's reading, Matthew links Jesus' baptism to the fulfillment of righteousness. The differences among the Gospels are interesting, but it's what they have in common that I find more fascinating and that I believe are key to interpreting this passage. First, in each of the four Gospels, the account of Jesus' baptism is accompanied by the giving of the Spirit. And in three of them, it's accompanied by that voice from heaven pronouncing that Jesus is God's beloved Son, a child of whom God is most pleased. Whatever else Jesus' baptism may mean, it's certainly the place where he learns definitively who he is in relation to whose he is. At his baptism, Jesus is given the intertwined gifts of identity and affirmation. And in each gospel, Jesus is baptized before he begins his public ministry. In all four gospels, the theme is clear. The gift of identity precedes mission. We might even go further and say that only by having a clear sense of God's affirmation and identity can Jesus take on the enormous mission in front of him. This is poignantly clear in Matthew and Luke in his time in the wilderness just after his baptism. The tempter's point of attack is precisely the question of identity. If you are the Son of God, why don't you do this or that? The tempter knows that Jesus is vulnerable to temptation precisely to the degree that he is insecure about his identity and mistrusts his relationship with God. And isn't that true for each of us? Whenever a high school friend of mine left the house to go on a date, her father would call out after her, remember who you are. It is when we know who we are, how worthy we are, whose we are, that we are able to make good choices, to resist what we know isn't really good for us or what isn't good for the world that God has given us. This is where these stories of Jesus' baptism intersect with stories of our own. Those who follow Jesus are baptized into him, into his life. This means that somehow, some way, we share the same identity with Christ. Or maybe a better way to put it is that when we are in Christ, we discover who we really are. We don't see a descending dove, perhaps, but what's declared in baptism 
is our true identity as well. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are beloved and well-pleasing to God. You are worthy. This message, I believe, has never been more timely. Our culture promises acceptance only if we are, and here you fill in the blank for yourself, skinny enough, strong enough, successful enough, rich enough, popular enough, beautiful enough, young enough, and so on. But the message of baptism is that God has declared that we are enough, that God accepts us just as we are, and that God desires to do wonderful things for and through us. This may be just what people desperately need to hear. Now, let me be clear about this. We are not worthy because we have been baptized. In the Presbyterian tradition, baptism is not linked with salvation, whatever your definition of salvation is, and I'd guess there are maybe 130 definitions of it in this room. One of the reasons we practice infant baptism is because it expresses that before we can do anything, achieve anything, amount to anything, God claims us. We don't have to believe something, recite any creeds, accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We don't have to do anything at all to be declared worthy of God's love. We are worthy because we belong to God. The unbaptized also belong to God and are loved by God, but they haven't had a public opportunity to announce and celebrate that fact. So they may feel less motivated to act on its implications, to live into the identity of God's beloved people, claimed by God as God's own. You might be thinking, I was a baby. I didn't announce or celebrate anything either. I don't even remember being baptized but others do. Whether we were actually there or not, the church, the community of Christ, carries the collective memory of all our baptisms. We remember and celebrate, and we will remind you. That's why we place the baptismal font so prominently in our sanctuary. When we baptize someone, I might be the one saying the words, sprinkling the water, But you in the pews are participating. You promise to nurture the child or the adult in the faith. You promise, in essence, to remind the person of his or her baptism. And we all need people to remind us, sometimes daily, who we are and whose we are. We all need a community that knows that we are worthy for no other reason than that we belong to God. It's so easy for us to forget or doubt these claims when we're hounded by the messages of not enough. And we need a community to remind us that when we leave the sanctuary this morning and go about our lives during the week, every single person we encounter is a child of God. Every single person we encounter is worthy. A teacher in our congregation posted a story on Facebook It's a true story, by which I mean that at least parts of it are factual, and all of it holds truth. It's about a teacher and truth and how we do God's work of declaring that people are worthy. 
A teacher stood in front of her fifth grade class on the very first day of school. She told her children a lie. She looked out at her students and said that she loved all of them the same, but that was impossible because there in the front row, slumped in his seat, was a boy named Teddy Stoddard. Mrs. Thompson had watched Teddy the year before and noticed that he didn't play well with others. His clothes were messy. He often needed a bath. He could be unpleasant. It reached a point where Mrs. Thompson actually took delight in marking his papers with a broad red pen, making bold X's, and then putting a big F at the top of the paper. At the school where Mrs. Thompson taught, she was required to review each child's past records, and she put Teddy's off for quite a while. And when she got around to reviewing his file, she was in for a surprise. Teddy's first grade teacher wrote, Teddy is a bright child with a ready laugh. He does his work neatly and has good manners. He's a joy to be around. His second grade teacher wrote, Teddy is an excellent student, well-liked by his classmates, but he is troubled because his mother has a terminal illness, and life at home must be a struggle. His third grade teacher wrote, his mother's death has been hard on him. He tries to do his best, but his father is struggling, and his home life will soon affect him if some steps aren't taken. Teddy's fourth grade teacher wrote, Teddy is withdrawn and doesn't show much interest in school. He doesn't have many friends, and sometimes he falls asleep in class. By now, Mrs. Thompson realized that the problem wasn't Teddy's. The problem was hers. She felt even worse when her students brought beautifully wrapped Christmas presents for her while Teddy's present was wrapped in a brown paper bag. Some of the children started to laugh when she opened it and found a rhinestone bracelet with some of the stones missing and a bottle that was only a quarter filled with perfume. But they stopped when she exclaimed how pretty the bracelet was, putting it on and dabbing some of the perfume on her wrist. Teddy Stoddard stayed after school that day just long enough to say, Mrs. Thompson, today you smell just like my mom used to. After the children left, she cried for about an hour. And on that very day, she says she quit teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic, and instead she began to teach children. Mrs. Thompson paid particular attention to Teddy. As she worked with him, his mind seemed to come alive. The more she encouraged him, the faster he responded. By the end of the year, Teddy had become one of the best students in the class, and in spite of her lie, that she would love all the children the same, Teddy became one of her teacher's pets. The next year, when he moved on to sixth grade, she found a note from Teddy under the door, telling her that she was still the best teacher he'd ever had in his whole life. Six years later, Teddy wrote that he'd finished high school, third in his class, and she was still the best teacher he'd ever had. Mrs. Thompson received similar notes from Teddy when he graduated from college and then grad school. Each letter explained that she was still the best and favorite teacher he'd ever had. The last letter was signed, Theodore F. Stoddard, M.D. Then Teddy wrote that he'd met a young woman and was going to be married. He wondered if Mrs. Thompson might sit at the place in the wedding where the, that's usually reserved for the groom's mother. Mrs. Thompson agreed, of course, and she wore the bracelet with the several rhinestones missing and the perfume that reminded Teddy of his mother. As they hugged each other, Dr. Stoddard whispered in Mrs. Thompson's ear, 
Thank you, Mrs. Thompson, for believing in me. Thank you so much for making me feel worthy and showing me that I could make a difference. Mrs. Thompson, with tears in her eyes, whispered back. She said, Teddy, you have it all wrong. You were the one who taught me that I could make a difference. I didn't know how to teach until I met you. The Stoddard Cancer Wing at Iowa Methodist Hospital in Des Moines, Des Moines, Iowa, is named for Dr. Theodore F. Stoddard. But Teddy was not worthy because he had a hospital wing named after him. He was worthy regardless of whether he ever went to college or even did well in the fifth grade. The point, brothers and sisters, is that when we see the child, or as our faith would put it, when we see the child of God, instead of seeing all the ways our culture screams that he or she is not enough, when we treat the person as worthy and beloved as of God, everything changes. This is my child, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. This is already true for each of us, for everyone. May we believe it and live into it. That might even be worth a New Year's resolution. Amen.